did this one study onto zooplankton looking at, you know, the changing in lipids and how the microplastic uh, pellets, if they eat the microplastics, and, and, you know, it does change how an organism can eat or can't eat. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Mad St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas. We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications. And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today, we will be sitting down with another brilliant woman in marine science to discuss microplastic pollution. Now, if you think back to our first episode, if you managed to catch that with Dr. Imogen Napper, we talked about the instance of microplastics being found on Everest. And today, we will be heading back to another cold and often pristine environment to discuss the finding of microplastic pollution once more. Now, our polar regions are often considered untouched waters, largely due to their remoteness and often the lack of civilization. Yet both the Arctic and Antarctica are subject to local pollution from tourism, fishing activities and research. Our guest today, Sarah Reid, is Ship Ops Manager and Technician at the Scottish Association for Marine Science, and she's recently published a paper on microplastics in marine sediments near Rothera Research Station in Antarctica. Sarah Reid, Saz Reid, welcome to the podcast. We're thrilled to have you here this 8am on a Tuesday after a bank holiday How are you? What have you been up to and where are you in the world? Ah, good morning. I'm sat here with my coffee and cinnamon (laughs) looking out um, on the mountains of Glencoe and Balahulish. Yeah, I've uh, I've actually just come back from a long weekend on the island of Rum uh, where we went round the Coolins, which was an epic day. And it's been amazing weather up here in Scotland and the midges have only just started to come out. So it's great. (laughs) That's brilliant. Are you so you up there for work or just for fun? Uh, mostly fun. No, I'm actually I've actually moved up here for work. Um, so so I uh, moved up here to start a job at the Scottish Association for Marine Science. Uh, we are based in Oban, uh, just outside Oban, on a little peninsula called Dunbeg. Um, and we overlook the Falls of Laura and all of the kind of Argyll Mountains. And me and my partner then bought a house in Balahulish, so we're a bit further up the road, so that we have the mountains and the locks to play in on the weekends. Wow. Balahulish. Such a good name. <laughs> Balahulish. It is. You should hear our Alexa trying to um, <laughs> say Balahulish when she says the weather. It's just like Balahulish. <laughs> is your Alexa, does she have the normal accent or is it a Scottish one? At normal. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a shame. <laughs> Do you know, the Highlands is one of my favourite places in the entire world. 
I keep saying to my mum, I'm like, if I ever invest in property, I'm going to just buy in the middle of the Highlands. And my mum was like, you'll have no friends. You'll just be on your own. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's the funny thing. So I never really, I came up here a few times when I was younger and like went to Sky and I was like, do you know, I think I'll, I think I'll probably live somewhere really hot. And then um, I worked in British Antarctic. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm definitely not in a place where it's hot. But um, And then I, after uh, working with the British Antarctic Survey, I then got the job with Sam's and I was like, I don't even know where Oban is. But so my partner had to try. <laughs> it was, I just kind of said yes to the job because it was, you know, it was a job working up in the Arctic, working in Scotland. I was like, yes, I'm coming. Wait, where am I going? <laughs> so um, my, my partner who has done a lot of... Um, kind of mountaineering in Scotland kind of he had to drive us up here because I was like wow this place is beautiful uh, and then we kind of got to Scotland and I was like right it's on it was really too ridiculous I kind of forgot it was even on the west coast of Scotland and now I'm here I'm like wow it you know it's got everything it's got the sea the mountains and you know working from Sam's you've got um an outdoor laboratory that's just on literally on our doorstep um it's amazing <laughs> oh, I'm so jealous. I was in Oban last year. I went to um, try and find some whales on a on a boat up there. And we did like a massive tour of loads of the lochs. And it was, oh, it's just a stunning place to live. So I'm so incredibly jealous that you get to be there every day. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not it's not great in the winter, I suppose, from December to February. You kind of have to all kind of have your wits against you and kind of make sure you have your wet weather gear and torches and just keep going out because... Yeah, um, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> and so I guess this is kind of a good segue into another slightly harsh environment that uh, that you had the pleasure of, of working at. Were you actually based out in Antarctica? Yeah, so so after um, I went to Plymouth University and I did marine biology and oceanography, I started kind of asking around about different jobs and the British Antarctic Survey job popped up. And then one of my friend's daughters worked there. So I got in touch with her, who put me in touch with the person who runs the um, Rother Antarctic time series data set. And I sent him my CV maybe the first or second year of my when I was in uni. And I said, this job looks awesome. What have I got to do in the next maybe year or two? to kind of build up to, you know, maybe get in that job. And he basically replied going, you've pretty much got everything. Just keep doing what you're doing. And then he actually emailed me before the interview, before the job application came out. And he was like, right, you have to apply. So I applied. Um, and then when I had an interview, uh, this is a very long story, but I then randomly bumped into the chief air pilot for the British Antarctic Survey at a gliding club. How do you just bump into that? <laughs> well, I, I know, I know. It's, so basically straight after uni, when I was kind of doing this pre-interview stage, I got a job as um, a tug pilot. So when, so I'm also a glider pilot and kind of a, uh, just a pilot in my spare time, just like fun. Uh, wow. <laughs> this sounds really weird when you explain it. <laughs> But I've been doing it since I was five. So in my head, it's like normal, but it's actually not, I suppose. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so, yeah, I fly, I fly planes, but um, I ended That's up so getting cool, a job. by the way. <laughs> Just randomly throw that in there. Yes. Uh, so in my spare time, I fly planes. I'm also a pilot, you know. I worked in Antarctica. I'm a pilot. I live in the Highlands. <laughs> You're a cool girl. A very random life. But yeah, so anyway, then I ended up getting a job at this airfield and the, my first day on the job, so basically I, my job was to fly the motor plane and pull the gliders up to height. 
So on my first induction day, um, Alan Meredith, the chief pilot of the British Antarctic Survey, walked in and I just had to stop him. I was like, uh, I've got an interview with the British Antarctic Survey next week. We've got to talk. So then he put me in touch with one of the marine biologists, Terry Suster, who I then ended up working with because somehow then I got the job. Uh, <laughs> and then I basically went down as marine assistant. Um, yeah, and we lived at Rothera on the Western Peninsula for 18 months. Um, wow, 18 months. Uh, what, yeah. So what was it like? I know we're supposed to be talking about the paper, but we were, we all want to hear what <laughs> was it like. to that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly, it was probably one of the best things I've ever done. Um, I learned so much that, you know, the, the reason we're down there is to, you know, do the core science. So with the Marine Assistant job, we were running a long-term data set. We were there all the way throughout summer and winter to try and keep up the core samples. But on top of that, you're also living together. You're you're basically a family, your friends, and you're living on this research station. You're learning to cook. You're doing carpentry in your spare time um, because there's quite long nights. You're doing movie nights. <laughs> you're doing parties. You're learning to ski. And then, you know, your job is then going out on boats and collecting data or diving and collecting samples. And then you're in the lab. And it's uh, it's honestly just an incredible place to learn. And I suppose I was I think I was 22 when I went down. So, you know, I was like, what am I doing with my life? And I was like, wow, I, I think I'm like learning. I learned so much when I was down there. Basically, the whole of the British Antarctic Survey that end up leaving have moved to the Highlands. So there's about 40 of us that live around this area. So when you were saying that, um, you know, you move in the middle of nowhere, then actually we've all kind of ended up in the same place because everyone is very similar. They like the outdoors and, and science. Um, it's, yeah, very, very weird world. How oh, that's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so incredible I'm just mind blown that you know 22 is a is a quite a a young age I feel to go to Antarctica and it sounds like you had the most incredible experience did you get to come back at all to the UK in this 18 months or were you solidly down there no so we were solidly down there so we flew in from we did lots of training in the UK beforehand and I actually had two months in Cambridge and that's where I came up with this microplastic uh, idea that we'll probably come on to in a minute but um, (laughs) (laughs) um, so then after pre-training so you kind of do you we already had our professional diving from Plymouth University and lots of other uh, marine qualifications like our boating and things like manual handling and after the training then you go down to Antarctica you basically go down to Chile and then you have to wait for this flight and you go down on a Dash 7 uh, which is an incredible plane and only fits about 12 people or cargo they kind of swap you out for kind of fuel sometimes um depending on <laughs> depending on the wind direction that did actually happen once he was like I'm sorry I'm gonna have to leave you here because I need the fuel <laughs> I do not weigh the same as a fuel drum that's that was what ended up being my friend Alan Meredith but uh yeah so then you kind of fly down or you can come on the ship so at the time we had the Shackleton and we also had the James Clark Ross and they would come down all the way from the UK down to Antarctica and swap over supplies and people and take people back. So I actually ended up flying in on the Dash 7 and then I actually went back. So I was at rather of 16 months, which sounds such a long time, but honestly, it went so fast. And then I was two months on the ship going from Antarctica 
all the way to the UK, bringing the transport aquarium back with live Antarctic animals. And then what? actually, yeah, <laughs> it was one of the most stressful things I've ever done. <laughs> Coming through the tropics, <laughs> like trying to keep the water cool was you can, around minus 1.6 was, oh, it was one of the most stressful things. And then I suppose to top it all off, then whilst on the ship, I got the job for Sam's because uh, I did the interview in the captain's cabin just over the phone in my pajamas um <laughs> kind of like lockdown now really it was kind of like lockdown because it was like it was like 6am or something because of the time zone where I was because my then end up boss used to love working early so yeah then I jumped so I got the job and I was only home in the UK for two weeks and then jumped on the other British Antarctic survey ship the James Clark Ross and we went to the Arctic for I think seven weeks so I basically went all the way from the Antarctic all the way up to Svalbard um it was a really very very again weird year <laughs> wow i feel (laughs) slightly like i need to go now and have an adventure i'm kind of like i was just thinking to myself i was like hmm wow my life is feeling very beige right now in comparison to this (laughs) don't worry it's foggy it's foggy down there the rest of the time (laughs) oh that's such consolation (laughs) and in the highlands i mean it's wet and midgy If that helps. Yeah, that's our only consolation. It is now sunny in in the south of England. (laughs) That definitely beats uh, bringing incredible Antarctic creatures home across the sea on a giant (laughs) ship. Oh, it was honestly so stressful. So um, let's let's come on to the topic of our paper today. And I mean, I'm very excited to get into this now, having heard a little bit more too about uh, Rothera and Antarctica. So we're here today to discuss your paper, Microplastics in Marine Sediments near Rothera Research Research Station, Antarctica. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit, I guess, about how how did this project come about? And um, you know, give us a bit of an abstract like summary of uh of what went down. Yeah, definitely. So the pre when I was um in Cambridge, I was there for about two months kind of getting to know the scientists that I'd be collecting all this data for. Um, and I kind of had a bit of spare time. So I started and I, I knew that I would also have spare time when I got to Rothera because, um, you know, the weather can be quite bad. The leopard seals can mean that you can't go diving. Things break. Um, what? So there's a bit of spare time. <laughs> I'll come We've back to Rothera. We've gone off on a segue. We'll just jump on that quickly. The, leopards, <laughs> the, the leopard seals mean you can't go diving. Okay, yeah. Let's. Okay, I'll come on. <laughs> So I, I know the story. I know the story. It's not a nice story. Yeah, oh, no, tell, so, you've got to tell the story. For I'm going to have to tell listeners. the story now. So, so basically, there's actually lots of things that can stop you diving in Antarctica. So there's things like the wind direction, the brash ice can come to the wharf, so that means you can't get the boat in, or the sea ice can be in such a way that you actually can't ski on it or put a boat in. Then there's the wind. Uh, then there's people being ill or uh, people being off on winter trips. But then there's the leopard seals. And leopard seals um, are becoming more prevalent around Rothera. They're, they're normally solitary animals, so they kind of swim on their own. Um, and one of the, our surveys is to look at how many leopard seals there are around Rothera and where we dive. And then, you know, there was a really horrible accident quite a few years ago now um, with one of the marine biologists, Kirsty Brown. And she was snorkeling and doing this awesome a survey on what are called the ibis grids so they're these amazing concrete blocks and she set up this survey which is actually still going uh, it's five by five uh, grids and you look at how icebergs hit the ground and then the biodiversity changes uh, she was so she was snorkeling on this um, and unfortunately a leopard seal thought she was a seal 
or some something else and basically dragged her down because they dragged their prey down to drown them and oh so then since then we've had to do what we call a seal watch and we train everyone on base to kind of look out for these leopard seals and we do the training and we kind of explain what each seal looks like and you know for leopard seals we don't like to victimize them because they're incredible animals but they actually look um like Voldemort they have the same smile um so <laughs> and if you look Perfect. at a picture of Vol- yeah and if you look at a picture of Voldemort now you'll kind of see it so we get people to do and the way they move as well they sometimes have two pump humps because they move so fast and that honestly they're incredible swimmers so basically when we see one when our seal watch goes out 30 minutes before we do while we're getting ready if there's a leopard seal seen then we don't go diving for four hours and then we reset the 30 minutes um seal watch so yeah that was that that was that bit <laughs> <laughs> wow thanks i digress I, <laughs> and i loved it back onto the paper because of the, all this spare time because of things like leopard seal stopping you uh, I knew that we would have a bit of spare time to kind of do um, science that wasn't part of this long-term data set. And I finished uni, I think it was 2015. So I knew Richard Thompson, um, you know, he came up with this name, microplastics. So, you know, particles that are very small and break down from large parts of plastic. And I was like, I wonder if there's microplastics in the Antarctic. So I came up with, I spoke to Kevin Hughes, who is the um, environmental kind of officer for SAMS, uh, for, sorry, BAS. <laughs> um, so many acronyms <laughs> for BAS, the British Antarctic Survey. And I spoke to him and I was like, can I do this? And he was like, yeah, if you can sort it out, I can give you some bottles. Uh, you just need to sort out uh, how you're going to kind of do the analysis. So then just before I went down to Rothera, I, I actually met up with Richard Thompson in Plymouth. And I basically asked him, is there any chance if I collect these samples in the Antarctic, like, would you analyze them? And he said, I obviously don't have time, but if you can get a student, go ahead. So I kind of went down to Rothera with these bottles and a plan, um, because when you go diving, you kind of do your um, 30 to 45 minute dive where you might be collecting animals or doing a photographic survey or um, turning over temperature loggers. And then at the end, you have a three minute safety stop. And this is standardized uh, three at five minutes, uh, three minutes at five meters, sorry. And um, this, you know, this happened every dive. And I was like, well, that's like three minutes we're wasting. So <laughs> I basically asked everyone if they would be keen to take three samples in the sediment in like an arc shape and literally just do three repeats, put um, mud in the bottle, screw it up and put it in their bag and then come to the surface. So we managed to do that in the first summer. And you can see um, on uh, the second page, the the map, we ended up doing stations in South Cove, which are our main kind of, this is the Ibis Grizz I was just talking about, looking at the impact of icebergs and biodiversity. Uh, Cheshire Island is where we have our temperature logger and a long-term data set. And then you have North Cove, which is where our sewage outfall is. So I actually did some grabs here um, in a transect and also lots of dives to kind of fill in this area because this is the bit I was interested in to see if we were polluting it. Mm. And then uh, we also went out to the islands, so a bit further away from the flow of the main research station to see, you know, if there were any uh, microplastics there. Uh, And I suppose then it gets even more complex because then I put a thing I just offered on Facebook to this page that I'd made uh, when I was at uni. Um, It was called Marine Biology and Networking at Plymouth University. It's still going, actually. Um, And I just put up there going, hey, anyone um, at Plymouth University doing their degree, does anyone 
fancy getting involved uh, with microplastics and potentially analysing my samples. So then Marlon Clark came along and, um, you know, I had a few people and I spoke to them to check they were like actually keen and going to do it because basically I managed to send the samples down on the ship uh, after my first summer. They then got sent to Plymouth Uni where Marlon then amazingly worked them up all over the summer while he was doing his degree. Then that meant I had uh, the whole trip with the transport chrome because there was a lot of downtime with that as well when I wasn't helping out on the ship. Or doing the transport chrome, mm-hmm. I actually wrote up the paper because I had two months just to focus, which actually worked really well. And then the great end to that with Marlon is that he actually then ended up getting the marine assistant job, uh, oh. not after me, but the year after. And he still he still works down there actually as a base uh, GA. So it's just a really wow. nice how everything kind of links and came together yeah. to to really yeah write a really uh, interesting paper. And it is an absolutely brilliant paper. And I think to jump on one of the most interesting points straight of all that you just touched on as well is you speak of wanting to look at this area that's outside of your waste waste sewage treatment area where it all pumps into the sea so that could potentially be one of the local inputs into this microplastic pollution that occurs in the antarctic but what other sources could there be of any microplastics pollution in the area yeah, so definitely. So we obviously have the, there's lots of different research stations all around the peninsula. It's, it's kind of the, one of the hotspots because it's really, it's easier to get to from Chile than quite a lot of the Antarctic. And because it's easier to get to, you get lots of, um, you get lots of fishing vessels, you get sailing vessels. There's actually massive vessels these days that go down. And I think over a thousand people can fit on them now, you know, so that's a lot of people on one ship. Um, And the regulations are changing. Uh, Marpol for, you know, regulations of dumping at sea, I think, and the Antarctic Treaty are coming together to change uh, the pollution. Um, Because, for example, after this paper, we managed to change one of the filters on the pumps for the wastewater and the grey water to try and catch more microplastics. Um, and that's what, you know, Emmy's working on, uh, you know, with the washing machines and the fibres. Because mm. um, that's, you know, one of the most things we found was fibres from your fleeces, which is ho- obviously very important down in Antarctica. Uh, so we're not going to stop wearing fleeces uh, just quite yet. <laughs> and uh, so obviously the ship regulations, the marple need to change so that vessels also kind of get these types of filters. But it is it's good because when um, a yacht, for example, goes down, they do need to get uh, a license to say, you know, where they're going and what they're doing. You can't, you, people do just rock up, but um, most people have marine tracking now through AAS and you know what people are kind of up to. And there's such a small community and people are pretty hot on this stuff now of trying to keep pollution reduced. So then... The main type of pollution you're finding then was predominantly microfibers from clothing. Yeah, um, mostly from clothing. There was wipes. What else did I find? There was, yeah, the, oh, the rayon uh, fibers. And that's mostly from, I think, how, the, you know, the runway needs to be, it's such a short runway. Um, and we have things like Twin Otters and Bazas Land and I, that the surface needs to be really good. But I think back in the day, they used to use um, kind of mashed up, um, I think, tires and things. And that's still in there. And I think that's all kind of been picked out now. Um, but there's rayon. Um, there were some beads because we found some like red screens, turquoise. Uh, and that was like 20%. So that could have been from, you know, before they banned uh, the face washes. Because they would have gone straight through the treatment plant 
Um, there's lots of textiles, um, wipes. And it, yeah, it was all just... And, and the other thing is, before the treaty came about, when the base was very new, they, you know, they ch- kind of used to just chuck the rubbish onto the ice and wait for the summer for it to fall into the sea because... There was kind of no system set up. They they didn't know any better. So I suppose we're, we're still finding that the degradation of the larger parts of plastic that might have been pushed off uh, on the sea ice, you know, we're probably finding that in the sediment. So it's all of the history there as well. It's quite interesting, really, because, you know, when I think of Antarctica, I just think of it being this extremely remote place that's kind of pristine and untouched. But you know, as your research highlights, it's not the case. And, you know, there are a lot of people, increased tourism boats, there's a heck of a lot of fishing that's going on down there. And then also, as you say, there's, you know, all of these different groups at research stations um, that are having an, an input. And, you know, I, I'm sure that a lot of people listening probably have a good, um, or maybe know that Antarctica is an incredibly special place. But if you could, you know, because plastic pollution we know is a problem and we know one of the main problems is is for wildlife could you explain a little bit about the biodiversity that you find down there and the impacts that plastic might be having yeah uh, so the biodiversity is incredible so that that i felt quite bad that everyone on the re- uh, research station you know wasn't allowed to dive there's only about four or five divers in the winter because you know it's obviously quite white uh, on the research station you have the buildings which are mostly green um, and then you have quite a lot of lichen um, and green around kind of the rocks and things. But then when you go under the sea or under the sea ice, it's like a completely different world. It's mm. um, it's absolutely dotted with colour. Um, there's these incredible animals called sea lemons, brittle stars all over the seabed. There's these amazing, you know, encrusting bryozoans, bright um, red colours, uh, lots of algae. The, the sea floor is just so full of life. And there's, you know, they're quite slow growing. They're very big. So if there's things like microplastics in the sediment and the water column, because they're such slow growers, their metabolism is slow, the likelihood of them then ingesting the microplastics, then the effects of that can potentially be worse than maybe other parts of the world because of just how um, the physiology of the animals are different because of the cold climate. Um, I did this one study um, onto zooplankton looking at you know the changing lipids and how the microplastic uh, pellets if they eat the microplastics and, and you know it does change how an organism can eat or can't eat and then if it gets into the, uh, the phytoplankton or the zooplankton, which is like the heart of the ecosystem, and then goes up to the water column, you know, and then we end up eating these fish because there are lots of fisheries around the Antarctic. Then that goes right through the food chain from, you know, middle up. Yeah, because krill, you know, I, I was recently reading quite a bit about the Antarctic and looking at how krill is a keystone species and pretty much ev- everything kind of stems back to it in a sense that either animals eat it or they eat it they predate on an animal that does um and when you were just explaining what you're explaining it kind of you know it's extremely worrying to think that they could potentially be ingesting plastic um and that that could move up through the food chain obviously into you know bigger marine megafauna such as whales in the region um and it you know it, it really is quite scary how quickly it can kind of spread throughout the food chain yeah, definitely. And there's there's other studies going on down the Antarctic. So in the Ross Sea, for example, um, I think that's in the paper, 
And, you know, they they did lots of grabs and found lots of microplastics. Um, and all of these little papers that are kind of popping up now are, are making this Antarctic treaty system, uh, you know, it needs to change because the protocol was brought in in 1991. But I think it's the Annex 3, the waste disposal. It does not represent the microplastics yet and the plastic. And it doesn't take account for what we as a research station might be adding or contributing to the environment. Or, and then, it, you know, it doesn't even come onto ships or cruise ships. Um, but it is changing. And, and, you know, this is this is one of the reasons why, you know, this is why we write papers. And I think that in science gets lost quite a lot is, you know, why are we doing this? Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons I want to do microplastics. So I was like, if I, you know, if I do this, this could actually help change the protocol on the environmental protection for the Antarctic Treaty. Um, you know, so this paper is actually being cited for that alongside all of the other papers that are coming about. But I do think one one thing that's also being lost is that, you know, people aren't doing kind of the same sampling protocol because there isn't a standardized way to sample microplastics. Um, and, and that's improving with things like, you know, social media, Twitter, um, writing more papers that are based on methods. Um, and I mm. think COVID's really helped with that, that more people are online and uh, having forums and webinars and um workshops are way more accessible to a, such a diverse variety of people that hopefully things like that will come together and actually help change policy which is you know the end goal is trying to change something you know we find something we find a problem we you know we try and change it and that's that's the type of science I really like you know doing is like trying to help <laughs> yeah. yeah to help create that change and yeah I guess that you know the Antarctic still at a fairly good space where you know the limit they are limited by local pollution to use as you said these research stations um the, the tourist boats that come in the fishing i mean that's still a fair amount of microplastic pollution but comparatively speaking to the rest of the world where we have this huge amount of coastal input of plastic um i guess you are in a good position to influence change very early on before we are seeing an ecosystem that is completely um, degraded by plastic. And yeah, I, I, I read the about the treaty in your paper and I thought that was incredibly interesting because as you say, in 1991, the word microplastic didn't even exist and it wasn't a type of pollution that you yeah. would ever be writing to account for because it simply wasn't something that was on our radar at all. And I know you did briefly touch on this and we we, we spoke about this in Imi Napa's podcast as well. Um, we now are building technology to allow us to stop putting microfibers, well, as many microfibers into um, the marine ecosystem and into our rivers and basically out from our washing machines by attaching this simple device um, that I've heard about, I haven't actually seen one in real life yet, um, that allows us to capture these, these microfibers before um, they can actually go out. So how do you think that that would be something that would need to be driven by this treaty in order for the bases to start using this kind of technology? Or do you think it is something that they would take the initiative as, you know, independent research bases to put that on as scientists thinking, you know, we want to get ahead of the curve and, and use this technology now? I would love it to be the latter, but people are lazy. Um, and, <laughs> and, and for example, so at SAMS, I'm now, um, I have a different take on this as well um, now because I'm the ship's operations manager and I'm a skipper for SAMS. 
um, and also a technician. So I have all these different things that make me think that actually it needs to be in the treaty and the protocol for things like this filter to be added to the research yeah. station outfall and also on ships. Because if it then becomes into, um, there's this other, I've forgotten the name of it, um, but there's, um, so you basically have the MCA guidelines for the UK and all of your research vessels that are used for science or work have to be coded and you have to do certain number of things on there. Um, for example, SOLAS, so you need to you know, have your life rafts, you need to have your um, uh, flares and things like that. And if you're going down to the Antarctic, there's things that come into account when you're working near the winter, uh, you know, the, the more sea ice times, you need to be like polar strengthened. So that's the, the new Sir David Attenborough um, to replace the other two ships I was speaking about earlier. Uh, the James Clark Cross and the Shackleton, um, you know, it needs to be eye strengthened. And they have a set of rules that they need to go through. And before they're even allowed to set foot, no, they're not allowed to set foot, go down into the sea, um, you know, down from the UK to the Antarctic. Um, so if that mm. filter is on there and it has, because there's a new, um, you know, going back to Marpole and the Waste Treaty, there is an annex on there, which you need to abide by. So if it has that filter in there, then people need to do it because people aren't going to pay extra money unless it makes them look good, I suppose. <laughs> um, and Because, you know, it's probably a lot of money to add it to all the ships uh, yeah. and all the research stations, you know, and, and they would love to do it. I'm sure every research station would love to do it, but the way f science funding works, it's it's hard to get funding for things like that unless it's actually stated that it's needed before you're allowed to go to sea. That's my take on it anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? It all comes back to you. Do we have the funding to do it? If not, we're probably not going to do it. Yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> and um, so I know you also mentioned that, uh, it, you know, massive problem and it has been for a while with microplastics is standardizing samples. And I remember when I did my undergraduate thesis on um, benthic microplastic pollution and I was doing a, a big lit review. One of the biggest problems I had was trying to compare mm -hmm. different locations because everyone yeah. is do, doing different methods and using different sampling techniques and, you know, has quantified microplastics in a completely different way. Um but I'd just kind of like you to try and put it into perspective for us. Compared to other ecosystems around the world, for example, the deep sea, how, how would you compare the levels that you found with levels in other ecosystems across the world? Yeah, so I was quite lucky by getting Richard Thompson involved with this paper because I, I just you know used his method because his method is standardised. Uh, in a way and you know he he was the big name he is the big name of microplastics so <laughs> yeah. you know we we took subsamples um we used a solution to then make the microplastics come to the top and then we kind of checked out the fibers we used filters um and we had the standardized procedure that is comparison uh, compared to some of the other samples that were taken in the deep sea. Um, I think Sam's was also involved in this paper because another colleague of mine from Sam's, who's actually now down in Plymouth, called Winnie. Um, she Winnie, I work with Winnie. Oh, do you work with Winnie? Winnie yeah. Cortini Jones. Yeah, so she's big micro. So she, <laughs> so she was originally at Sam's, um, and she did lots of things on deep sea and she had these samples and she I think she you know looked at sea urchins for example and counted how many microplastics there are so that's a different technique again because she's looking at the animals that are kind of you know eating and filtering this mud and looking at mm. how they've um 
built up all of this microplastics, you know, in their bodies. Um, so that, and I, I think it wasn't as much found in the places like the deep sea, because the deep sea seems to be a massive sink for microplastics because of the way the oceans are working and taking that microplastics down from the surface uh, and down to the deep ocean, whereas the Antarctic is a closed ecosystem and it has a circumpolar current, which is keeping this natural environment enclosed. So the, you know, the Antarctic is having less input uh, than the deep sea, for example. But it does come all back to standardizing samples. And then you have to standardize it for, you know, surface water. You have to standardize it for um, water, through the water column. And then you've got to standardize it for mud. And it's all mm. these different processes. Um, and this is actually what I found recently that um, I'm working on this other project. It's a citizen science project working with um, Row 2020, but now 21, obviously, because of COVID. Um, and um, another friend so it's actually another link to the British Antarctic Survey my friend Maz Fenton her mum got in contact with me and she's like I know you do microplastics I've read your paper um, like can we do something we're, we're going all around the west coast of Scotland like could we collect microplastic samples I was like yes so I got my friends from high water sales down in Plymouth to help with some gear um, Millport designed the net uh, and then we tested it out on the back of a canoe and then a skiff and I've used a, a paddleboarding paper, which is also citizen science, to base up the standardized sampling process. So I'm going to try and compare paddleboarding versus skiff, basically, and then try and get an abundance around the west coast of Scotland using citizen science. And, I, you know, I'm getting emails um, every few days because the net that we've made is being passed along all around Scotland. And it's currently in the hour everybody's on Barra. And I'm getting these fantastic photos of people um, you know, doing beach cleans and the microplastic toes going, we've just towed it. It's like a massive drogue, but it's for science. So we're really excited. <laughs> so that was a long winded answer, but <laughs> um, it all links. <laughs> I absolutely, I absolutely love that, that you're getting people involved. And I think that's something that's been really incredible about um, the plastic issue is that although it's a horrible pollutant, it is tangible to a lot of people and a lot of people see their direct connection to this type of pollutant and also, you know, can get hands-on. Um, you know, in terms of methodologies, it is something that you, you can train people up on and you can kind of leave them to go and do it themselves, which is fantastic for us as scientists because it means that we can get our hands-on data, you know, because money, as we've discussed, and, and resources is always a limiting factor. Um, and, you know, when you have these people that are willing to go out there and do it, it's, it's really brilliant. And, you know, what a fantastic initiative. And hopefully it, it's going to yield um, some interesting data. Have you got any ideas uh, or have, have you done any initial analysis on, on what you've collected so far? So I haven't actually had any of the samples yet, but um, uh, Greenpeace actually did a really cool uh, survey around and they unfortunately found I think microplastics in every single sample they took and that was actually Gosh. quite far offshore whereas we're going you know we're going a few hundred meters from the you know the edge of the land uh, all around the coast and around the island so I think unfortunately we're going to find quite a lot of microplastics mm. and hope and luckily the bloom's already gone through so the phytoplankton bloom's gone through so hopefully the samples will be a bit easier to work through <laughs> Yes, there's nothing quite like it being full of uh, phytoplankton, is it? <laughs> That's a bit of a, a logistical nightmare to try and sift through. Yeah, a student might enjoy that, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's mean to say. When it? in doubt, get a research assistant. Yeah. 
We've all been there. We've all been there. So we're coming kind of onto the end of the podcast now. Um, but tell us a little bit about what you're planning to do next. Yeah, so it's funny. I'm actually even speaking to you about the polar regions. I'm getting, you know, a massive itch to go back. Um, <laughs> and we've just finished this changing Arctic Ocean uh, big NERC program. So that's why I was brought to Sam's uh, to come on the diapod project. I was looking at lipids and diapausing zooplankton. Um and uh, yeah, now I'm kind of, I'm not doing so much polar stuff. Uh, so I'm kind of waiting for the next big project um, to come along at SAMS. And yeah, I'm working, um, I work for um, Polar, the Polar Logistics Company. My, my friends set up a business uh, and they're quite new and I'm an associate for them. And SAMS have said, if they get some work, then I can, you know, kind of be hired out if if I if I make it work back at Sam so I'm kind of holding off on that if um they need maybe an environmental impact survey or a diver or something but yeah I'm not sure what's next so I've got my um skipper's ticket so I'm doing um I'm working on the survey vessel and I'm I'm building up to be um the skipper on our little research boat um around Sam's um I already drive um a rib for Sam's um but I'm kind of building up that side of it and yeah, I'm trying to move on to the robotic side of the technology at SAM. So kind of working with ROVs, remotely operated vehicles, uh, so like underwater drones, um, sea glide wow. and things like that. But we've had, <laughs> yeah, so it's quite hard to get in into that if they think you're just, that all you can do is zooplankton, for example. But actually, you know, at Bass, we did quite a lot with robots. So I'm kind of, I'm trying to say, yes, I'm pretty keen to work with robots. <laughs> Yes to robots. Yes to robots. Because, you know, they can tell you a lot and they're really easy to get data from. <laughs> Completely. That is incredibly exciting. I've never worked with any robots, would love to. And it sounds like you have a very, very exciting future ahead, even if it's based in Scotland or wherever. Oh, my gosh, I'm incredibly jealous. <laughs> yeah, well, co- yeah, come and visit. If you guys ever want to come around Sam's, uh, yeah, let me know. <laughs> Oh, God, yes, please. <laughs> well, I shall be there in July, so I'm going to send you a message after this. Oh, super. Yeah, if you've got your dive gear as well, there's lots of dive sites. <laughs> yes, let's go diving. <laughs> yeah. So, Saz, where can people find you if they would like to learn more about you and your research or anything that you're doing, basically? Um, so I'm Sazreed on Twitter um, and it's sazreed.blogspot.com, uh, Tales of a Research Technician, if you fancy reading a bit about blogs. I've, I've been doing it since uh, I started at Bath. So yeah, um, those wow. are the two main places. <laughs> I'm on Twitter as well, uh, on uh, Instagram as well, Sazreed. <laughs> I mean, I'll definitely be going back and reading those blogs. <laughs> <laughs> definitely getting an itch to go back to the polls after speaking to you too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I now have the itch to go to the poles. I'm a tropical marine biologist, but suddenly Antarctica <laughs> looks very good. <laughs> yeah, it is. And and it's interesting because in the Antarctic, the air's so dry, you know, you just put a few um, more big clothes on and you're just, oh, it's great. Whereas in Scotland, it's so wet. You, you're you mm. wearing lots more clothes, but you're still, oh, it's just very, very different environments. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure Please let us know if you want to come back on again, talk about what you're doing. Hopefully I'm, I'm rooting for a robot paper. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much, Saz, for coming on. It's been, an, it's been a dream. <laughs> Super. Thanks so much, guys.
have been listening to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, brought to you by Women in Ocean Science and hosted by me, Matt Sinclair and Charlie Young. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to give it a share and you can find us on socials as at Women in Ocean Science. We are a non-profit organisation, so every like, comment, share and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and I hope you have an awesome week.